Welcome to the Actors' Equity podcast series. In 2014, Actors' Equity celebrates its 75th birthday, and over the coming months we will bring to you an oral history collected over the past years which celebrates the achievements and milestones of actors. We will bring to you insights and observations from performers about their profession and why they value their union membership. I remember seeing an ad for the auditions and I thought, oh God, I love Superstar, but of course I'm not a rock singer because it said wanted rock singers and I was a classical soprano, that was my training at that time and I was a student at the independent theatre school where Doris Fitton was the principal and uh, I was actually doing a production directed by Colleen Clifford called Half in Earnest which in itself was amusing. It was the musical version of the importance of being earnest. Anyway, uh, with songs like Don't Touch the Cucumber Sandwiches, things like that. Anyway, so um, there was an agent and, a, and an actress in that, um, Joy Ruby, who said, no, look, they, they need sopranos because no, no sopranos are turning up. So I was learning with Colleen Clifford, my private singing, and uh, so I thought, OK, well, I'll, I'll go. And I worked up Summertime, the fabulous Gershwin song from Porgy and Bess, with movement. <clears throat> and uh, so I went in to this audition and wearing a very uh, smart, long brown frock. Superstar brown almost. Anyway, so I went in and did Summertime, which had a very high range. I think I sang it quite well, but of course in the middle of it, I put in these little steps and looking down, Fisher jumping and the cottonies high and all these little gestures that I think they thought, oh, we've got to get her, we've got to have her in the car, she's too funny, you know, we're going to have to get her. So I did a couple of callbacks, <clears throat> which means, you know, coming back again like a second interview, a second audition, and uh, had to do some uh, dance movement. And um, thank goodness for Keith Bain. I'd done some study with Keith Bain in the last two years at um, the Independent Theatre School. So I, I got through that and um, then I had to sing bits of Superstar, <clears throat> that sort of thing. And uh, I was actually working, my day job at the time was um, working for the Arts Council. And uh, it was sort of a running gag. I'd leave the office at lunchtime and say to Peter, who was my boss, oh, if Harry Miller calls, you know, tell him I'll be back at two or something. And anyway, one day I came back in and he said, you're not going to believe this, Harry Miller's office just called. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, so I called them back and um, I think that might have been for the callback actually. Yeah, maybe it was the callback because I actually found out I got the job on just before Good Friday. It was an Easter weekend and I remember the, I could not believe it. It was like winning lotto. It was my first professional job and... Um, my whole world was about to be turned upside down, you know. And uh, so, yeah, but the thing was, we were the touring production and a lot of us had never worked, um, it was our first professional show, as I said. Uh, now, the original cast of Superstar, some of them had stayed on to do this tour. We, we went to 13 cities. So um, I was just thinking back of, um, to, say, first day of rehearsals. And it was very much us and them. We had the very cool, sophisticated, low-key rock singers over in one corner, including um, John English and Trevor White from the original company. And then there was us, me fresh from virtually the convent. And um, <laughs> so Stefan Haag was directing the production. He'd come out with the Vienna Boys Choir 
many, many years before that and um, was a director of quite quite some note at the time and Chrissy Coltai was the choreographer. Michael Carlos was the musical director and he'd worked on the original production. And uh, i never forget, having come from a fairly structured independent theatre school and Chrissy Coltai would say things like, it's a feel thing. <laughs> and so we'd go, oh, what does she mean, you know? Uh, in the choreography. So, look, um, the us and them thing, um, it was also, um, I suppose I'm thinking back of uh, on wages, um, it was more than I was earning as a secretary for the Arts Council, which was about $98 a week, I think. So our wages were about $123 a week. This was 1975, and that, that was good money. And I think we got paid $43 a week for rehearsal. And I, I think that had just come in quite recently. Um, so $123 a week. <clears throat> and we're in good hands with Stefan Haag. We felt like he really knew what he was doing. Um, and uh, we, we rehearsed at the Doncaster Theatre Restaurant, which was quite close to NIDA um, in Sydney on Anzac Parade. And uh, it was an old theatre restaurant. And then we opened in uh, Newcastle was the first place we did. Um, we toured for 13... We did a 13-city tour, and I must say that by the time we'd been... We'd been out of the country for quite some time. We did five months in New Zealand. By the time we came back, um, and Melbourne and Sydney were at the end of, of the contract. It was about an 18-month contract. <clears throat> I must say, Harry was very, very generous because when we were touring, we were getting $60 a week living away from home allowance, and you could live very well on that money. It was like one one eighty three a week we were on, all up. We hired planes. We we did everywhere. We 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 became total tourists and you know um, shared houses and did all. It was a fantastic time. And I met lifelong friends in that production. Martin Croft and Gary Young and the cast of Air Supply were in that same cast. In fact, we all came up with the name. There was a thing. By the time we got back to Sydney. Uh, I'll get back to Harry in a moment, but um, the boys had, you know, had been sort of gigging around as a band, and then they said, "Well, we're going to do our first recording, which was Love and Other Bruises." Went through the roof for them, and uh, they said, "What are we going to call ourselves?" You know, so everybody put suggestions on the stage door notice board, and that's how it, the name of Air Supply came out of it. And they went on to worldwide success. You know, they still live in the states. I think they come back occasionally. But, uh, yeah, so we'd been out of the country for, we did, yeah, as I say, about five, six months. So then we did, um, we, we must have done the Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane. And by the time we got back to Melbourne, Harry very generously said, look, you know, you've all been out of the country for so long, nobody's got homes to go to. I'm just, he just kept paying that money. The sixty dollars a week. So whether you're from Sydney or Melbourne, you you did not get a cut in salary. He just kept that money going, and obviously the show was doing very well. It was a huge success. Um, but you know he didn't have to do that. So you know, hats off to him and um, a very generous man with his parties. He liked a party, and uh, that being my first professional show, sort of the benchmark was set fairly high then, and. Um, we were used to getting on buses, being given a glass of champagne that had Superstar Auckland, Superstar Perth, Superstar Adelaide, Superstar wherever it was. 
um, and going to mystery destinations. And uh, it was like Luna Park in Melbourne. It was a circus in Perth. It was the film, uh, South Australian Film Corporation with all the sets in Adelaide. It was, you know, somewhere else in Auckland. And, but um, great generosity. And so obviously, uh, you know, it was a success for him too, of course. Or, you know, I guess he couldn't have afforded to be so kind to us. Um, and that thing about lifelong friendships and those sort of bonds that, you know, those people are still in my life today, the ones I've mentioned. And um, so, yes, it was a coming of age in many ways. <laughs> um, yeah, just going back to the very first day of rehearsals, that was actually the day I joined Actors' Equity. And it was May 12, 1975. And um, I remember um, the delegate coming in from the uh, from the union and... It was a real, um, it was an honour to be joining up and to, it was the, you know, your professional badge and uh, I thought, wow, this is great. This is, means, you know, we're all very serious about what we're going to do here. And, um, yeah, very much felt that I joined a community and I still feel like that today, you know, almost 30 years on. And um, we, we actually got to the point right at the end of the Sydney season where... We were at the Capitol in Sydney, um, in Haymarket, and uh, there was uh, uh, the opportunity, although, you know, call it what you will, to go for the show to go to South Africa. Harry was looking into that, and, of course, there was a terrible unrest there at the time, and, you know, it was a war zone, basically. And I remember, um, it could have been Michael Crosby, actually, coming in, from the union to talk to us about this and he said well actually we don't want you to go we're advising you not to go and I felt this incredible sense of being protected by the union and supported by them and as it turned out um, of course it didn't come up Harry made a decision that he felt felt the same as well that it was just too risky too dangerous um, and it wasn't worth it it was too hard but it was Great to get that real sense. And I think that was the first time I actually, I went, oh, wow. Gee, it's more than just, um, you know, great working conditions and getting a good wage for us. It's more than that. It's a, a very big protective umbrella that's out there. Um, and even taking care of you if you went overseas. I thought that, you know, I was 21 at the time. I was pretty impressed by that. So that was, I guess, the first sense of, of, of having, um, you know, the broader community of the union and going, gee, unions are very, they're powerful organisations. Yeah. Yes, I was uh, in Melbourne working uh, with the Victoria State Opera, uh, schools touring, and I'd actually moved to Melbourne to do that job and I'd uh, auditioned for Robin Lovejoy, who was really a director of great note in, in the country at the time and he was part of the old tote in, in Sydney and NIDA... And so I felt uh, very thrilled to be um, coming to Melbourne to do that. So Betty Pounder, who was also a living legend, choreographer, who would go to the States and recreate these huge musicals for J.C. Williamson's and do it all back here. Um, I was so fortunate that I, um, she was working on that pr uh, production of Sid the Serpent Who Wanted to Sing, written by Sue and Jim Vilay, and it's being done this year in the year 2004 by the Australian Opera. It's still out there. Um, so the, the also delightful Greg Shears, 
directed that and he went on to run drama at the ABC, a great career in television. And, um, yeah, so anyway, that was just a bit of background there. But um, so when... Um, when Annie uh, was coming up, I did actually didn't have an agent then um, when I came to Melbourne because I thought, oh, well, I'm, you know, doing the school shows. And, but Betty Pounder said to me, oh, we've got this show coming up and I want you to come in. You're going to audition for this and it's called Annie. And uh, I thought, oh, wow, this sounds great. And then it started to filter through. We'd all started to hear about the Broadway show. And, <clears throat> and uh, so Betty Pounder got me an audition and... Um, it was uh, at Her Majesty's in Melbourne. And uh, I auditioned for that. Um, I must say it's a vague memory at the moment, but um, a chap called... Um, it was... Well, basically, he was... This used to happen, in, in, and it still happens to this day, that the resident director, not the initial director, would come out and direct the productions out here in the colonies. And it's just happened with the Full Monty. So you don't get the original person always. Sometimes you do, and I'll get on to lameness and things later. But um, anyway, George and Ethel Martin, that's right, they came out, auditioned for them, got the part. Couldn't believe it. In the ensemble. And he was great. And he was one of the first bigger shows to actually have, they started to call them ensembles and not chorus because we were all playing different characters we actually had dialogue um and characters had names it wasn't just singing and dancing up the back um as opposed to say superstar where i was in the definitely in the chorus of that the, the shows were still called choruses then and there was no dialogue in superstar as we know it was all sung through um so annie had a book what we call a script a book and um uh Fantastic music and written by Martin Shan and, and Thomas Meehan. And Thomas Meehan, of course, co-wrote The Producers that's opening this year here in Melbourne. Um, I met him many years later when I did Annie again, but more about that later. And, um, yeah, so got into Annie, I thought, wow. And I remember Betty said, come in and sign the contract, darling. And I went to the comedy. Their offices were at the Comedy Theatre sat in Betty Pounder's office and signed this contract and I thought, oh, oh, well, this is serious. This is legitimate musical comedy. This is what I've always wanted to do. Um, and uh, so that was a fabulous day and then, of course, you know, starting work on it. So Annie had literally the king and queen of the stage in it. They had We had Hayes Gordon, who had come here from the States, um, actually came out here during the House of um, Un-American Activities. He was blacklisted in the States, came to Australia, set up um, the Ensemble Theatre. Um, incredible uh, amount of work there. That, and the people that came through there, like Reg Livermore, John Ewing, Lorraine Bailey, um, major influences on, on me, mentors of mine, um, and Hayes, anyway, it was Hayes's baby, that theatre. Uh, the great Jill Perryman, who um, had been the lead in um, Funny Girl here. She took over from an American uh, for Call Me Madam. Um, she was Hello Dolly not so long ago. And, of course, Boy From Oz. More about that later. Um, and the incredible Nancy Hayes, who was Sweet Charity here um, over the years. Incredible careers, all of them. And um, 
so I thought, not only am I getting this Broadway show but and working with Betty Pounder again, uh, it's an American director this time and it's Hayes and it's Jill and it's Nancy Hayes. And I'm going, oh, my God, you know, Broadway's come to me. So I felt... And, uh, and a brilliant ensemble cast, uh, many of whom are still friends of mine today. Um, that was a great tour. Um, and it, we opened in Melbourne. And, of course, the star of the show was little Sally Bourne, Sally Ann Bourne, who was 11 when I met her. And she's just come back from England now um, and uh, kept in contact with her and her dear father, Ernie Bourne, I got to work with later in Beauty and the Beast. But Sally was, you know, everybody would remember that voice, incredible. So there we were. And I just think back to watching um, these people work. I thought here is an incredible opportunity for me to just observe the work of these amazing talents, incredibly generous human beings, uh, close up. And what I didn't mention is that I was in the show, played, you know, various characters, and... uh, I was an understudy for um, a beautiful actress, Anne Grieg, who played Daddy Warbucks' secretary. And now Hayes Gordon played Daddy Warbucks. Jill was Miss Hannigan. And uh, Jill's husband, Kevin Johnston, was also in the production. He played Miss Hannigan's brother, Rooster. And Kevin was hilarious and brilliant dancer. And Nancy played his girlfriend, Lily St Regis. And uh, so Nancy was the understudy for Jill and I covered Anne Greek and we used to re- do all our understudy rehearsals together. And that was another thing. I couldn't believe Nancy and I would run lines in her dressing room and um, I go, I can't believe, every now and again, I can't believe I'm sitting here, Nancy Hayes' dressing room running these lines and things. Um, so that was a gift. And um, Hayes was incredibly generous. He, every Wednesday between shows, he'd what he'd... I, to call it like it wasn't really, I suppose it was acting classes, but it was a drop-in situation, where meaning any actor who was in town who wanted to come in, do a couple of scenes, um, we were on stage at Her Majesty's, Hayes would sit there in his dressing gown, his hot noodle soup, and um, he would, uh, I mean, we're talking people like Max Phipps, Bud Tingwell, um, the cast of Annie who wanted to be involved and anyone else who was in town, literally. The word got out that this was happening. And it was just wonderful. So you'd get up and do your monologue or your scene that you were working up, you know, basically keeping your skills fresh because in a long run that's so important. You're doing eight shows a week, you're in there um, six nights, you do two matinees and plus two other days of understudy calls. So you are spending a lot of time in that building. So to keep working and honing your craft, and we, it was just brilliant. So by the time we got back to Sydney, Hayes made a very generous offer to us and said, look, anyone who wants to go to the ensemble, keep going, do whatever classes you want for free. Um, And so I actually moved to Milson's Point so I could be near the ensemble when we did the Sydney season, so I could do the Saturday morning classes and whiz off to the matinee, and um, some would say excessive, but (laughs) anyway. And um, so... When I actually, I went on for Grace, um, the role of Grace Farrell, the secretary, for quite some time and had some time out. And um, Hayes, because in those days, um, yes, 
wasn't really... Betty was the resident director on the show, but she had a lot of other shows on, so she couldn't be there a lot watching performances. So these days, resident directors are there every day with the show. They watch it, they give notes, they watch it, they give notes. It's a process that just continually goes on. So um, I was getting my notes from Hayes Gordon, so I was very pleased about that. So I sort of got this one-on-one coaching with Hayes for that role. And uh, I think what I learned through that was incredible. And it was great to know that he actually said to me, you're an instinctive actor, Robin. That's, you've always got that there and your instincts are right on it. You know. So I thought, oh, okay, that was a really good lesson to learn when I was very young. I thought, no, don't doubt that first gut reaction. Go with it. And um, so basically too, um, Jill, who's remained um, a very dear friend and a mentor for me in my life, I was absolutely bowled over because the way she would treat people she taught, basically, which was everyone was equal. She'd come in that stage door and she'd have a chat to whoever was taking out the garbage or pulling on a fly rope, the ropes that moved the sets up and down. Um, the person, the woman at the stage door, whoever, you know, her co-stars, everyone was equal. And I thought, that is a great way to be. That's the only way to be. And... Basically, you know, because the the long ones, they go on for a hell of a long time and you, you become a family. You're a, a very much a family and a community and um, and you really, the, the more you can get on, the more flexible you are and make life easy for other people is, you know, one of the answers to surviving for so long, I think, you know. And, um, and leaving your problems at the stage door. And that was something Hayes always said. Um... I was just thinking about him, though, too. The thing about people, uh, actors beat up on themselves. They go, oh, didn't hit that mark tonight. Oh, oh, missed that line or whatever. And Hay said, whatever mistake, whatever, let it go. Do not dwell on it. Just keep moving on. Don't even think about it, particularly when you're in a performance, because it's going to just domino effect through the whole rest of that act or that scene, and you'll fall in a heap. So just go, right gone and let it go um so i i was very fortunate i got a, a really some fantastic um and very valuable information <laughs> from these incredible performers who had done 30 40 years of it by the time i met them yeah well we were doing annie and um that was a almost a two-year um job but we the auditions um, came about, that's right, for Evita. Now, the producers of Annie were Michael Edgeley, the Adelaide Festival Centre, and JC Williamson's. And uh, the same organisation were doing, well, actually with Robert Stigwood came in on um, Evita. Um, I think Michael Edgeley actually wasn't producing Evita, but the others were still in there. And so um, the producers said, look, if anyone wants to um, audition for Evita, we love to invite you to audition and we're going to set up a special time for the Annie cast to be auditioned by Mr Harold Prince. Now Harold Prince is absolutely the guru of Broadway. He's directed um, the uh, Phantom of the Opera um, and he did that in Australia as well. He directed Evita on the West End and um, 
on Broadway. He's directed just about every Stephen Sondheim musical that has ever been on. And uh, I would say, I think he's got 11 Tonys or something like that. Um, So very, very exciting that this man was coming to Australia and he wasn't sending his resident director, he was coming out to do the auditions. Um, So we thought, oh, fabulous. So, yeah, I'd say three-quarters of the cast were coming to this audition. It might have been on a Wednesday between shows or something. And and I remember us going, gee, isn't it great we've got this special audition? Like, you know, don't have to queue up with the other um, 1,500 people who'd be going for this show nationally. And um, and then we started talking about it. We thought, gee, I wonder why that is. Oh, we're just thinking, oh, isn't that great? You know, we've been given this treatment. Anyway, as it turned out, um, we thought, why doesn't Hal Prince come and see Annie and then he'd see us in action? Hal Prince was not going to sit through Annie. He'd seen Annie. And the quote was that Annie had set theatre back 25 years. So there was no way Hal Prince was going to sit through Annie. So we uh, had on all... Uh, that's why we had uh, individual auditions outside of, of, of the production. And... Um, yeah, it was a long process, but this that isn't unusual. Sometimes you audition for a show and it's on the following year. Um, you will go through a process. Les Mis was a five-month audition period, but uh, more of that later. And So with Annie, um, we, we were doing Annie, as I said. Uh, the Evita auditions came up. Um, I remember the first the first audition, you, you usually do two songs. You do a, a ballad and an up-tempo. And I was basically singing soprano at that point, which is very high. Well, it's higher than your sort of average chesty Broadway belt song. So I did an example of those two, of showing the extent of my range for that two songs. And um, it was called Back, which is a re-audition. And um, I think there was probably about three of those callbacks. <clears throat> So there was a dancer movement type call. Um, I wasn't a dancer in the show, although I was a, a good mover. Thank you, Keith Bain. Um, but um, basically a singing actor. So the final day we got down to about 12 of us and we knew that there were going to be six people chosen. And there I was, basically in a mix with fellow cast members, people I loved and were great colleagues, and we'd all done the Annie season, and other friends from who weren't in Annie, but other colleagues. And it was the typical scene from a chorus line, where we got down to, like, I think it might have been 12, as I said. And they said, OK, there's going to be six of you. I, But I must say, and Harold Prince himself said, you're all here, you're all here, standing near the 12 of you, because you're all fantastic. He said, if I could have you all in the show, I would. It was, I'm just remembering that now. And uh, so we thought, wow, nobody had ever said that to me before. And uh, then they called out six names. And I wasn't in that six. And they called out six names and they stood over there to our right and there were six of us on here on the left side. And then he said to the six people on the right, thank you so much for coming in. Um, That will be all thanks. And the first group didn't get the job. And the rest of us were standing there. So it was mixed, I feel even emotion thinking about it now, mixed emotion going, oh, my God, I've got this. 
but seeing my friends on the other group who didn't get it, you know. The bizarre thing was that one of those people who was in Annie who actually had uh, quite a featured role, she was the star-to-be, Karen O'Neill, a fantastic performer, and uh, went on to do great roles in the West End. Um, Karen didn't even get into the ensemble of Evita. Well, a year later, she was playing Ava Perron. Um, when circumstances changed and we they were looking for an Evita, Karen actually took over the role. So that's, you know, the serendipity of show business. And uh, so, yeah, um, got Evita. There was some time out between Annie and Evita. I went to England for the first time. I went to London and I saw Elaine Page play the role. I saw Evita and uh, sat there in the Prince Edward Theatre and I thought, oh, my God, this could not have been more different to Annie because Evita took us into um, what became known as the black box um, production and it was basically that meant minimal sets um, yes of course you were still wearing costumes it was a period piece it was the life of Ava Perron um, who was the dictator married to um, Juan Perron who was the dictator of Argentina and um, very political piece so I sat in that theatre going, oh, my God, I'm going back. I'm going to do this show. I can't believe it. And it had a huge screen. It was the first time um, actual footage films had been used from the time. Um, it opened with a cinema in Buenos Aires and um, uh, there were... Yeah, it was minimal. You just had a doorway. You didn't have a whole painted set of a, of a room. You just had a doorway. Um, you had... Um, oh basically like a bed to represent a bedroom, but it was a very lavish bed. Um, just to give the essence, you didn't have to, it was, you didn't have to represent the whole, the whole room. It was just, you know, this minimal. Uh, so, so what that did was focus right in on the work, uh, much more clearly on the actors. And Evita was another show that was sung through the entire show. There was no spoken dialogue. It was some um, uh, and the great Tim Rice, the fantastic lyricist, um, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, superstar again, that combination. Um, probably those two things are the best things they've ever written, ever. Yes, um, Evita was a groundbreaking production. As I said, it couldn't have been more different to Annie. Annie was set in the 30s. It had, you know, it was like a chocolate box. Everything was there. You didn't have to imagine anything with Annie. It was all there in front of you, the sets, the costumes, the whole bit. Times Square, you name it. Daddy Warbucks Mansion. So with Evita, it was the total opposite, as I said, because you have just rep minimum representation of sets and very evocative use of a screen, uh, real footage from um, the reign of the Perrons in Argentina. And... Uh, so it was a very, very political piece and uh, very powerful and, um, like Les Mis, stirred up a lot of, a lot of things um, started to... You started to question a lot of things about your own politics. Yes, during um, the run of Annie, um, I made sure, whenever I was in Sydney, um, and we were in Sydney for a long time with Annie, um, that I would go to the Nimrod Theatre on Sundays and see plays there with the likes of, you know, incredible actors, John Bell, Anna Volska, Drew Forsyth, um, Jackie Weaver, Robin Nevin, and, of course, 
Peter Carroll, and I'd just seen Peter um, quite recently do um, the Christian Brother there, a uh, tour de force, and he's recreated it last year in um, Melbourne. And uh, Peter Carroll was about to play um, the lead in Evita, and he was um, Juan Perón. He was the president of Argentina, Evita's husband. And uh, so, yeah, it was e- extraordinary to think, oh, my God, I'm going to be working with Peter Carroll. And, indeed, the beginning of a, a lifelong friendship and a colleague, working-colleague relationship. And so Peter... Um, was actually our equity deputy. And uh, so rehearsals, I'm pretty sure in the first couple of days of rehearsals, which were in Sydney, um, we rehearsed for two weeks at the Elizabethan Theatre Trust. Um, And Peter volunteered to be the deputy. Um, That's the usual thing. If people don't volunteer, then all the cars vote you in, you have no choice. So (laughs) you think, oh, I better do it. But uh, Peter very generously offered to uh, be uh, our equity rep. Um, deputy. So um, John O'May was also in that cast, played Che Guevara and uh, yeah, so just a very interesting thing about this um, rehearsal period was yes, we were all very excited about the fact Hal Prince was coming to Australia to direct the show but where was he? We'd done two weeks. We had two expat Australians who were putting the show on the, the entire show had been blocked before Harold Prince even arrived. So we had um, Connell Miles from England and Linda Patworth from New York. Now, both of these people had done the Broadway and the British production. Now, there were quite a lot of differences in those two productions. For a start, they had different casts. And so what started to happen in our rehearsals was that Linda, who'd come from New York, started to call us by the names of the Americans who played the role. And I don't mean the character roles, I mean their real names. And Connell started to call us by the names of the English actors who play these parts. This is including the major stars. This is including Peter Carroll and John O'May and Jennifer Murphy, who were not even called by their own names. You know, Elaine, would you mind standing over there? You know, I'm sorry... That's not Elaine Page. Anyway, we got to this point. Tensions were running fairly high. And we got to some point during that, I can't believe, we, I'm sure a week wouldn't have gone by, when Peter Carroll stopped the rehearsal and said, I have got to say, I'm totally offended by the way you are speaking to us. And I'm speaking on behalf of the whole cast here. You know, my name's Peter Carroll. That's John O'May. That's Gary Ginevan. That's Neil Melville, Jennifer Murphy. We are not Joe Bloggs and Mrs. Such and Such from England or or New York. It was the most insulting time. And we're still going, and where's Harold Prince? Um, Finally, Mr. Prince turns up and watches the last run in the rehearsal room and gives notes. Well, actually, it was a fantastic note session. But it was never actually explained to us that he wasn't going to be there from the word go, but of course he knew that what his plans were. and So we were going straight to Adelaide to do the next two weeks of rehearsal, then the bump into the theatre, we're about to, we, Evita opened at the Adelaide Festival Centre. We rehearsed for the final two weeks at His Majesty's Theatre. That was where rehearsals were, so a stage big enough to take the 35 cast members, etc. 
but we still had no set. So we didn't get the set until we moved into the festival theatre. Um, so we get to Adelaide and we're going, oh, great, well, we're going to get Hal Prince now. He'll be here. Well, no, we didn't. He decided to go to Dunk Island or something like that. Um, and so we still didn't have him. And I remember one day Jer- um, um, Jennifer Murphy, who was uh, playing Evita and could have done with that one-on-one with Harold Prince at the time, um, actually put her hand up and said, well, can I just uh, ask where is the director? And the entire class applauded and we went, yeah, where is he? You know. And I think John Robertson actually did come up at that point, one of the producers, and um, said, oh, Mr Prince will be with us when we go into the theatre. So that's what happened. We didn't see him till we actually got into the theatre to do what we call what is known as the tech week, and you just plot like you know step by step the show's lit, all the elements come together. It was a very complex um, show technically um, because of the added thing of having footage, uh, etc., and this huge screen that came and went all to, you know through various scenes. Anyway, so um, we had uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber came out. Um, uh, Tim Rice and um, I should just mention here that Andrew Lloyd Webber was not allowed to set foot into the pit Um, we had very strong musicians union and I think they're still pretty strong so he wasn't allowed to set foot in the Australian pit so he was shouting things from the stalls to Peter Casey who was in the pit Larry Fuller who was the choreographer from New York Never set foot on that stage. Never, ever came up. He was screaming things up to the dancers and the dance captain from the stalls. And uh, Tim Rice, was he was actually it was great. He was in there, in the wings, wherever. Um, however, there was a demarcation thing with the Musicians' Union. It happened again later when um, Paul Gemignani, who had worked with Harold Prince on many productions, as you know... Um, one of the greatest musical directors Broadway's ever seen, came out to put Patti Lapone into the show in Sydney. Um, so Paul was, same thing, not allowed to go into the pit. I thought, gee, it's very, they're very strong there. This is something we could be emulating <clears throat> with our imported artists. More about that later. Uh, so uh, we finally get this show. It's happening. We've, we've done the tech we have Harold Prince actually comes back to us to talk to us about the fact that I believe there's been a bit of um, the company's been a little bit, uh, he didn't say disappointed, he wouldn't have said that, but, you know, wondering why I haven't been here the whole time. He said, you know, this is how I work and I've put, I've done, I've done 11 productions of, of Vita now and I'm sure you can understand that, um, quite frankly, um, yeah, um, I leave it to my assistants to set it up and... We went, oh, okay. Would have been nice if we heard that actually previously. So he uh, spoke to us all, and literally the curtain was about to go up on our first dress rehearsal. He said this to us, had his glasses on the top of his head, he was, you know, that was his trademark, walked around, tripped over a few cords, and fell flat on his face in front of the entire audience at the Adelaide Festival Centre. But I've got to say, um, I don't mean to be disparaging towards him, he knew the time he was going to be here, we didn't. That was a misunderstanding. Um, the man gave, gave incredible notes. Um, you know, his vision of the piece was what we were doing. 
he created it originally and it was a brilliant production, a very successful piece and, and a very challenging piece of work. And uh, so the note sessions were brilliant. Uh, Vita, I suppose, was a bit of a, a pricking of political conscience for me um, because it was about, you know, justice for, for people, and, though the play was set in Argentina, but, you know, issues of justice for all. And we um, were touring Australia. Um, we'd come to... Um, we were actually in Adelaide at the time. Well, we did open in Adelaide and the show was going on to... Perth and um, Perth, Melbourne and Sydney. Um, now, the producers did not want to pay us for the time between cities. And those of us, we'd all left our homes. We had nowhere to go in that time out. We could not afford, because we, we're talking on $250 a week here, you know. Um, so we, we, we didn't know where we could even live in that time. Um, and I think it was about two or three weeks. I, I could have been a three-week, because it would have had to have been, because to get that set across the Nullarbor Plain, and that's the only way they did it, was by a truck. Um, so we thought, I don't think this is good enough. And Peter Carroll, well, we all had meetings, well, there were various meetings with, with Peter, who was our dep, as I said. And Michael Crosby came over from the union, and we thought, no, this isn't fair. We've got to get some payment for this time out. Um, which is now called layoff between cities. And um, so Michael Crosby came down and the producers said, were sort of coming to the party a bit, but they said, no, there's got to be a trade-off here. We've got to get free publicity um, from, from you, the actors, to do publicity for nothing. Um, the big one was they wanted us to give away any Sunday penalties. And we thought, there's no way, because we actually thought, and we were fully conscious of whatever decision was made there was going to go on through the decades and have ramifications on our fellow workers and on us and our futures down the track. So we did not want to give away Sunday penalties. So we said, no, we're not giving that away. We're not going to trade that off. Um, we had great solidarity amongst the company and really, I suppose, it was the first time I saw what was possible when a, a cast really were unified on this. And we said, no, we said, no, we believe you've got to give us that layoff money. Um, the show was doing very well. It was getting, it was critically acclaimed. We had a great advance in Perth, and in Perth we were about to play the entertainment centre. Now that seated 8,000 people. So we knew there was big money to be made there for them. Um, but basically, it was about, once again, um, getting a fair deal. And so we really hung out for that. As I said, I think Michael Crosby did come over. He negotiated with the management. They were digging their heels in. But in the end, it was our solidarity and us going, no, we can get this. And we did. And they agreed to it. With this payment for the layoff, and what, what we're talking about is... Um, yeah, uh, surviving in that time between cities. You know, they had their advance bookings coming in. We didn't have salary in advance. So that what we were wanting was we were being paid to keep our commitment to that production and to basically keep the food in our mouths during that time. Um, and literally, um, 
being able to pay the rent wherever you were going to go. Now, if you went to Perth a bit earlier, and that's what you'd do, is you would go to find um, where you are going to be living. And, um, you know, basically, yes, um, most people had let their flats or their homes go, um, unless people had families they were going to go back to Sydney. Well, they didn't have any other way of getting back there. They had to pay their own airfares and, or train or bus or whatever they were doing. Um, so that was survival money. And I was in the ensemble of Evita, so I wasn't on a leading role salary. Um, you know, it was about the $250 a week mark. And um, the award was about 207 I think, at the time. So we were being paid above that. Um, but you were not going to get anything. Once that show closed in Adelaide and you opened in Perth three weeks later, there was no money. So that's what we held out for. Um, and solidarity won the day. Mm. But being part of a Vita and particularly meeting Peter Carroll, um, who was so articulate, um, well, about everything, but um, he... I suppose I started to really, uh, I mentioned before, um, political consciousness and awareness of how being a performer meant being a unionist as well. It was, it was one and the same. They all just kept crossing over and that you had to stay active about protecting your rights and keeping these working conditions and, make, and improving on them. Not just sitting back going, oh, okay, we've got this contract, oh, terrific. But thinking actually, oh, well, that's got to be honoured and not letting things slip through the net. Um, and so we were, um, we, we'd actually got back to Sydney and a new theatre award had come in during this time. And the, the salary that most of us, in a, well, the entire original cast, I'm not talking about principals, but the ensemble, were on... Um, about two fifty a week, which was basically um, above the award, as I mentioned previously, and so we were about forty bucks or so above the award. Now, what this meant, though, and it didn't really hit me until um, we uh, really started discussing it, was that we didn't get sick leave, we didn't get holidays under this um, uh, cut-off figure. So the new award that came in. Um, eradicated this cut-off, got rid of the, the phrase cut-off, and we got those benefits back, which was an incredible win uh, that the union got on our behalf. And so, yes, you know, if you were injured or you'd um, had the flu or something, um, you were able to get paid if you weren't there. And previously, you know, you'd been people were just dragging themselves through the shows and, you know, trying to, to be be there when they really should have been at home whatever so basic human rights in in the sense of what people were getting out in the wide world you know finally came into the theater so it was a major win um so the show was going on uh, many months had gone by and we had 10 new cast members we were back in sydney and um we uh actually i remember this um uh one interval and i was talking to some new cast members about going to the Nimrod or going to see some play, let's say. And they said, well, no, oh, a friend of mine said, no, I can't actually afford to go to that. And I went, oh, OK. No. And then it went down the line. About six people started saying they couldn't afford to go and see this play. Now, it wasn't a very expensive ticket price. And I thought, oh, well, they all got 
huge debts or what's going on. We all started talking. Now, this is really important that actors do talk about what they're earning. I discovered that the 10 new people in the cast had not been hired on the same money as the people they replaced. We were all in the ensemble, all doing the same job. They were doing the same job as the people who'd left the cast. But the original cast, which I was part of, we were getting um, $251 a week and the others were on minimum. We were getting um, the, um, the cut-off figure. So a new award had come in in 1981, a new theatre award, and um, basically they were getting the minimum. So a great disparity here of about 40-something dollars a week. Um, and uh, we started talking amongst ourselves. I told Peter Carroll, we all started talking about, well, this is not fair, this is not on. How come the management are giving them less money than the people they replace? The show had done very well. You know, it was on in Sydney, it was doing well. We'd already done the other cities. And uh, so we got uh, talking, Peter Carroll got... Um, equity involved. We, as a cast, first of all, wrote letters to the management, which is the Adelaide Festival Centre, as I mentioned before. And um, so uh, then the union wrote, we got nowhere. The union wrote, they got nowhere. Um, basically, um, and I think it might have been Michael Crosby who did come down and talk to us and we thought, I think we're going to have to take some sort of action here. And it was... Um, a pretty strong decision to make. We chose to hold the curtain for 30 minutes on a Saturday night with a packed house. We leafleted the audience. Um, the union did all of that printing. They, they wrote the flyers up. Well, we were in, you know, um, we were in collaboration with them, the wording, etc. It was great. I thought, wow, we're really, you know, going to be active and involved here. And... Um, it was a unified, once again, unified strength with the cast from ensemble to principals. And, um, of course, Peter Carroll, as I mentioned, was a star of the show. And um, so we basically, had, we had our costumes on. We went out the front of the theatres. Now, there were buses coming in from all over New South Wales to this production. That's what happens with the big shows. They bust them in. And Faye Bendrups and I, and I'm sure Peter Carroll was on one of these buses as well. He would have been. We went onto these buses, picked up the microphone for the driver and said, ladies and gentlemen, we just want you to know, don't be alarmed, uh, but the show's going to go up late tonight and this is why. Um, you know, I said, I've been in the original cast and uh, we've discovered that ten members of the cast are not getting equal pay. Of the pe the pe they replace people, they're not getting equal pay, they're getting a, at least 40-something dollars under the salary that they should be on. We don't think it's fair. They all applauded on this particular bus I was on. Faye Bendrups was on another one and Peter Carroll was on another one. So we did hold the curtain. Well, it basically really... Uh, it, it scared the producers, let me say. And uh, So they came to the party after this. Um, I've got to say that during that evening, um, there was a curtain speech, and I'm sure now Peter Carroll would have given that speech to tell the audience, those that we'd missed on the buses, you know, that had just gone straight into the theatre why the show was going up late. And the whole audience applauded. Peter Carroll had said, you know, um, that's why that's happened and we hope it'll be sorted out by the end of the night, tonight's performance. So during this evening, and we were 
afterwards, after the show was over, we went into the bar afterwards and bar staff and the ushers were coming up to us and saying, members of the audience were coming up to them and saying, you tell the producers from us, you know, this is a bloody good show. They're all fantastic in it and they tell them, pay them the money they're owed. So that's what happened. They, they, they caved in. They were humiliated into, into paying that, um, those equal wages. And um, it was very exciting to be part of uh, an action. It wasn't a strike, but it was, it was enough action to really make the producers go, they mean what they say. We, are not gonna t- we can't take this lightly. And I got a real taste of how good it felt to stand up and be counted. And, uh, you know, so it was, um, it was great. And also we, for our colleagues, you know, and it, it meant a lot to them that they'd seen us support them um, and they felt very happy to be coming in to a cast and be that embraced and supported. So it was a combination of union and the personal, you know, with their colleagues. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a great thing to be part of. Mm. The great feeling of, of, of standing up and being counted and supporting um, new cast members who'd come in. And around this time, there was um, major funding cuts to the arts. Uh, the Fraser government had made big cuts. I know the ensemble lost their private funding and never got it back. Um, ma- many companies went to the wall, very many smaller companies. And so there was a national day, a stage crisis day. So there was a chance to support the larger community of actors and writers and directors and designers and the whole, the whole um, sector of the arts, um, not just the show you were in. So um, those of us, um, the usual suspects, went down to the town hall um, and I remember seeing Patrick White speak that day. Um, just seeing the man in person was an extraordinary thing for me personally and I'm a great admirer of his writing, of his books and his plays. Uh, Robin Nevin, again, Ruth Cracknell and, of course, the marvellous Gough Whitlam and Margaret Whitlam and uh, a great gathering of performers there. Um, and... Once again, I was starting to get more and more a sense of how powerful this union was, how, how I felt great to be a part of it, and I went, wow, it's not just me and the cast of Vita. You know, this thing is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the wider community, um, the sense of solidarity there, and people who were so articulate and passionate. And so it was a growing, yeah a growing sense of being part of that. And I thought, you know, this is very exciting and it was, a, it was something that has grown throughout my, um, you know, my time with being a, being a member of the union and being, being in the profession, which are totally one and the same. Because the de- first day of my professional job um, with the Superstar was 1975 and that was the day I joined the union. So that's been a constant part and um, an in- integral part of who I am. And that was the beginning of, of that discovery, really, I think. Basically, Evita was a bit of a turning point for me, yes, politically, and also because through that cast I met um, Neil Melville and Lance Strauss and I, and we did Jacques Brel shows here in Melbourne at The Last Laugh and at Nimrod in Sydney during the run of Evita. And just, I thought, oh, OK, um, 
I'm going to try and make a change in my career now and go for roles, go for straight plays, um, go that next step. And I turned down quite a few big shows around that time, like La Cars, Sound of Music, Pirates of Penzance. I thought, no, I don't want to be in the, in the chorus. I've done my, done my six years or so. And um, so I actually auditioned for the Q Theatre and it was a brand-new Australian production written by Philip Scott and Luke Hardy and it was called Safety in Numbers. And it also uh, starred uh, Frank Garfield, Simon Burke... Marriott Rucks and myself and it was a four-hander and a great show. Set in Glebe, um, Australians using our own accents, not singing with an American accent or a British accent um, and I got to meet the fabulous Philip Scott who wrote it and wrote the music as I mentioned and um, a friend to this day. Yeah and that was great, and I did a couple of shows at the queue, the Sentimental Bloke. We, in fact, Safety Numbers closed the old theatre and Sentimental Bloke opened the new one. So um, it was great. And Arthur Dix directed Safety Numbers and then Dorian Warburton and Arthur worked on Sentimental Bloke, which starred Nicholas Eadie. And the wonderful David King, who's now head of WAPA Musical Theatre, was our musical director. I worked with David a lot over the years and Michael Tyack. Um, so... Yeah, we sort of, years went by. Um, I started to do, you know, more featured roles. I did um, work for the Queensland Theatre Company, Side by Side by Sondheim, and um, which was a great lead into company for the Sydney Theatre Company, directed by Richard Werrett. And that was a stellar cast. That was an incredible group of people. You had Tony Sheldon, Geraldine Turner, Sue Walker, Terence Donovan, um... We had also, uh, once again, Marriott Rupps, um, Simon Burke, Natalie Moscow, Martin Croft, uh, Michael Turkish, Jodie Gillies. It was Jodie's first big foray into um, her professional career um, and, and what a debut it was. So, and there was Lamy's after for her, for both of us. But um, So company was... A, again, working for a subsidised theatre company. And it was during that time, and having met Geraldine, that um, she said to Martin and I one day, look, you know, come into a meeting with me at the union. And uh, she was on the performers' committee at the time, I'm pretty sure. So we came in, and it was when uh, the Sydney office was based uh, in uh, King's Cross. And it was a, used to be a radio station, the building, near the Minerva Theatre where Hare first opened so we went in there, and that was really, I think it was about 82, 83, I'm not exactly precise, but around that time, and um, we, that was really the beginning of getting involved with committees, and just going, okay, that's the next step. You're in the cast and you're active, but getting involved in, you know, a chance to even maybe be involved in, in policy and, and suggestions about um, award conditions, improving whatever, working conditions, etc. So that was sort of the beginning of coming in sort of as an observer from various casts that I was part of. And um, it would have it was the lead-up later to um, being part of the um, Federal Council, which is an elected position, and I did that for... Approximately about almost about a six-year period, I was elected twice onto that. This was later though; this wasn't in the eighties. 
Um, I remember thinking I, I might be out of my depth here, but I wasn't at all. I remember feeling very welcomed in. You know, once again, we were a part of a successful production and, um, well, we came in with Geraldine anyway. So, um, yeah, and I felt... No, I felt very much like um, valued. I didn't say a word that first meeting, of course, and, you know, just observed. Um, but, uh, yeah, I thought, oh, okay, oh, right. I just started to see how how the union fitted together into a working actor's life. I started to see how this jigsaw was fitting together and uh, the pieces were sort of coming together. Yeah, so... And it was the beginning, really, of um, you know going on to be deputy for certain companies, etc. I mean, I'd certainly thought about it, and particularly with Evita, um, you know, being working so closely with Peter Carroll. Um, but I didn't have the confidence way back then. You know, I was just really soaking it all up. So, um, yeah, I, I guess it was inspiring, and um, particularly... Um, the way Geraldine... I'm pretty sure she must have been our representative on company. We are at the Opera House, Sydney Theatre Company. And um, and both for Martin and I, he he also took it on board to the deputy um, job with other casts that he went into. Um, one of the campaigns that, um, that came up was a very active campaign was to save the Regent Theatre in Sydney, which was in George Street, just near Town Hall Station. It's still a hole in the ground. Um... And this is 20 or so years ago. And David Netheim um, enlisted me to come in and be part of... There was a big press conference at the Rishbrook Theatre and um, Godspell was on there. In fact, I think a couple of versions of Godspell went into that theatre years ago too. Um, And I sang the Stephen Sondheim song, but with new lyrics written by David Netheim, which was I'm Still Here, being the voice of the Regent Theatre. Um... And uh, it was great being part of that. And I remember actually going and, and typing signatures from all the all the um, petitions to save the theatre into a database at Sydney University. A lot of actors went in and, and gave their time to do that. The campaign wasn't successful um, because the people who owned the building um, somehow got in there and ripped the thing down overnight. It's incredible. They, they were going to save the foyer, but I don't think that... Well, it didn't happen. And um, Barnum was on there. I remember seeing Barnum there with Reach Livermore and Gay McFarlane. Um, but, um, no, it, unfortunately, that was a theatre that was lost. Mm. Nonsense was a joy from beginning to end. Uh, Barry Creighton directed the show and it, in fact it was the first time I'd ever been asked I didn't have to audition for Nonsense he'd seen Safety in Numbers and the show at the queue and he remembered that and um, so I was asked to do the role of Sister Robert Ann in that who was the total ham in the show we're all played nuns Joan Sidney, her sister Maggie King Georgie Parker who was 19 at the time and um Kelly Wells and yeah it was a great time because Mike Bosch was the producer Sue Farrelly was the executive producer and there was it was seamless because there was always open dialogue Um, Mike has a great respect for actors and for performers as does Sue and um, it was a really really happy time actually we toured nationally and 
basically, uh, for me, I went straight from that into Les Miserables. Um, we had Michael Tyack, um, who was our musical director, but a fantastic team of, of actors and singers. And, uh, yeah, it was great to see, um, I suppose, a producer, particularly Mike, who who'd had such a kudos with his daytime television programs, <clears throat> that he was... Um, you know, just an absolutely delightful and generous human being.